Evening, friends. It's great to be with you here tonight. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't uh, met you before tonight, uh, you're very welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. I'd love to meet you afterwards, particularly uh, if you're someone who is exploring perhaps being part of this church. We're running a session called Onboard immediately afterwards. I do have a large amount of mini, mini magnum ice creams downstairs in order to bribe those of you who are here and maybe wavering about whether or not you're going to join us. Um, uh, regulars, I'll send you away. Uh, uh, but uh, if you're new and, and you want to ask questions, we're going to have a session that'll run for about 45 minutes an hour after church. Love to meet you. Love to help you ask questions about Barney's. Uh, that's the first thing. Second thing, um, if you are here uh, for the first time, you've arrived in the midst of a series that we're doing, listening to Jesus' teaching on uh, the suddenness of his return and his coming justice and the way in which that should shape uh, how his people handle their resources and their possessions. Uh, and it's been quite a challenging series over the last two weeks, and this is the third and final week for this project. The, 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 and the final thing I want to say to you is um, I uh, just got out of the spicy cough cage last week, so uh, I was testing positive through to, like, about Wednesday, and then lots and lots of negative. Um, I'm almost certainly going to cough um, at some point in this, but it's safe coughing. It's the safest of all coughing. And not only that, but I have this unbelievable immune system. So, like, right now, you know, nothing can get me. So, you want to come and cough on me too afterwards, I'll be fine. Because i got, like, eight weeks of, like, COVID proof, so I'm saying. Um, so, if I cough, don't freak out. Um, it's just because I'm riding the post-COVID bus. Okay. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for... Uh, your word for uh, preserving for us the teaching of your son Jesus Christ so that we might know how it is to live faithfully for him and to follow in his steps. Um, open our hearts tonight and convict us, change our lives we ask so that we might be more and more like him and please you in every way. In Jesus name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, so um, I don't know if you've noticed this but we, and by we, I mean people in general, are genuinely useless at predicting the future. Famously, in 1946, uh, the then head of IBM said, worldwide, there will one day be a market for maybe four computers. Ernest Rutherford, the father of nuclear physics, once said, Anyone who expects a source of power from the transformation of the atom is talking moonshine. Lord Kelvin, uh, the man after whom the uh, temperature scale used in science, he wrote in 1896, I have not the smallest molecule of faith in aerial navigation other than ballooning or expectation of good results from any of the trials we hear of. We just aren't that great at predicting the future. Which is, which is a real pity because imagine what you could do if you knew it was coming. I, and you probably would have invested in Apple shares for a start. But particularly, imagine if you knew that the future was going to be utterly different from the present. You know, imagine if you could prepare and plan for that very different future. Um, you know, in, in my family, we do spend a lot of time um, 
disproportionate to, I think, the re realistic likelihood of it eventuating, um, discussing what we would do in a zombie apocalypse. What building would you go and make your base? Uh, the, the current agreement amongst the Paget family is that um, uh, the old building at the centre of Sydney University would be a great option because it's got a, an open square suitable for growing, you know, arable land, but also thick sandstone walls to keep the zombies out. And if you could prepare for a radically different future, you'd love to be able to do so. But the problem is that, in general, we actually have no access to that future. Um, Ian Wilson once wrote, however good our future's research may be, we shall never be able to escape the ultimate dilemma that all our knowledge is about the past and all our decisions are about the future. All our knowledge is about the past and all our decisions are about the future. Except, of course, if Jesus is right. Jesus, in all of his teaching, makes clear that there is a shape to the future that is certain and can be prepared for. And tonight we're going to look at this. Uh, I'm going to do three headings. <coughs> Excuse me. Firstly, what is the future? Um, Secondly, who will Jesus choose? And thirdly, how then should we live? What is the future? Who will Jesus choose? And how then shall we live? And if you're a note taker, you might find those headings helpful. According to Jesus, what is the future then? Repeatedly, Jesus taught that the day will come when the world will come forever. The world will change forever for everyone. Uh, it, it won't be because of a global financial crisis uh, or uh, an international pandemic or climate change or a giant asteroid or even the bankruptcy of Tipcock. All of these things will have a real and life-changing impact for many of you, particularly the bankruptcy of TikTok, I understand. But none of them will have the kind of impact that the return of Jesus will have according to his own teaching. There will be a day that comes when Jesus returns, not as a teacher to be crucified, but as a king to reward and judge. In verse 31, we read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. That phrase, son of man, is a way in which Jesus often referred to himself. He's actually drawing from some prophecies in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel. He called himself son of man and he came into the world as a son of man, uh, born as a baby to an ordinary woman, coming in humility and poverty into a world which ultimately betrayed, rejected and executed him. But Jesus says that the day will come when he will return not in weakness, but in power and in might. He will come with the angels, the army of God, and he will sit on his throne. And that image of sitting is important. Traditionally, when a king sat on their throne, the king was sitting in judgment. We actually get that phrase, to sit in judgment from that. The, the king sitting is a symbolic act. And who does Jesus say at that point he will judge? All the nations. 
according to Jesus, at this point, every single person from every single culture and nationality and tribe and tongue, all Australians, whether or not they go to church at Easter or Christmas, all Africans, all Chinese, everyone in Saudi Arabia, all will be gathered before Jesus on that day. But they won't stay gathered because Jesus says that the very first act that he will perform as he sits in judgment will be divide those crowds into two groups and only two groups. Verse 32, he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, adjusted for the congregation. In the uh, ancient Near East, it wasn't unusual for shepherds to graze both sheep and goats together. They'd be spread out across a wide hillside like dandruff and they would feed together. But at night, at the end of the day, the less hardy goats would have to be separated out to be put somewhere warm. In the same way, Jesus says, at the end of the day, the enthroned Son of Man will separate out all the people of the earth into two groups. Notice that gentle, kind, meek Jesus doesn't ask permission. You don't choose your own path at this point. This isn't like school scripture where the Christians go to Jesus' throne room and the Buddhists go to Nirvana and the secular humanists do their homework. Jesus says that at this point, it will be his decision. At this point, every single person who has ever lived, regardless of gender or race or creed, will find themselves in one of two groups according to Jesus' call. To one group, he says, verse 34, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And to the other, he says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. According to Jesus, those whom he calls blessed will inherit the whole world. They are heirs of a kingdom that has been prepared for them since the creation of the world. Notice there's, there's no sense of kind of particular moral deserts in this. That, that is, God has been planning this since the beginning of time. And, it, and the inheritance they have, well, you don't earn an inheritance. You receive it as a gift because of the family to whom you belong. But according to Jesus, the lowliest beggar in Calcutta will tower over the greatest of, enemy, of, of emperors sorry, who has ever lived. They will inherit the kingdom of God, all creation. They will receive the gift of eternal life and they will come to him and be blessed by his father. And those whom Jesus calls cursed, he says, will depart into an existence so terrible that it was never intended for human beings. Humans were always intended to be in the kingdom of God, blessed by the father at God's side. Hell, as Jesus describes it, is for the devil and his angels. It's the greatest of tragedies that a human would ever find themselves there. And Jesus isn't 
He's not telling anyone this to gloat. This is the one who weeps over Jerusalem, the one who dies so that no one, none of us should end in hell. But ultimately, where else is he to send people who refuse to come to him? The only option is to depart from him and to depart from all the goodness that he's created, all the source of life and joy and happiness and relationship, to go away from all the good that he has made. And Jesus' judgment on the nations is total, absolute, and final. And what this means is, no matter how extraordinary your career, how lasting your contribution, how massive your service, how successful your marriage, how wonderful your lifestyle, how great your acquisitions, Jesus says the day will come when your entire existence and resume will be reduced to a single word. Go or come. Cursed or blessed. Punishment or reward. And in the light of that one word, what else will everything else matter? Like for even a lifetime of 70, 80, 90, 100 years is nothing compared to eternity. And this judgment, Jesus says, is eternal. Jesus' point here is that no one but a fool would fail to build their life around ultimately the opinion and judgment of just one person, Jesus himself. If if your life is rested on achieving anything else other than his affirmation, welcome and praise, then you have horribly misjudged the direction of the universe. And given that this is situated in the midst of Jesus' teaching that at any moment he might return, at any moment he might arrive, this isn't something that you put off reckoning with and wrestling with until you're an adult, until you're aged like me. You know, whether you're 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 60, at any moment your life could be assessed in this way. And so there's good news that Jesus then tells us how we can prepare for that day. Specifically, who he will choose uh, so that we can ensure that we are on the right hand, we are amongst the blessed rather than on the left, amongst those who he sends away from him. So, if we're going to take Jesus at his word and it is impossible to extricate Jesus' teaching on the future judgment of the world from everything else he says. You can't just take the nice things and leave behind the hard things. They're part of the same collections that we receive. So how does Jesus choose? Who does he choose? Who will he decide will be on his right and who will be on the left? And Jesus' answer is that the blessed, those who will inherit the kingdom, those who will receive eternal life, those to whom he will say, 
come are those whose love for him is visible in their care for those he loves. We say it again. Those whom Jesus will call blessed are those whose love for him is visible in their care for those whom Jesus loves. Let me show you. Have a look at verse 35, what Jesus says to those whom he calls blessed. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Jesus says that those who are blessed are those who loved and cared for me. And that makes sense. Uh, Why would Jesus choose to call into his kingdom for all eternity those who've shown no interest in being with him for all eternity, those who've shown no love for him? He says it's it's those who have cared for him. But both those on the right and those on the left are a little bit surprised by this. We're, We're told in this story that Jesus tells that they both ask him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? And notice, by the way, they're not surprised. They're not questioning whether why they're on the right or the left. That will make sense. Do I take it all of us on that last day? What surprises them is the thought that they ever encountered Jesus in his hour of need. To which Jesus replies, have a look at verse 40. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did For one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, a little bit of context would be really helpful here. At the moment, Jesus is talking through uh, Matthew 24, 25 and 26 to a group of his disciples. He's actually taken them aside for a while to talk to them about his coming return. And so when Jesus says whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, these brothers and sisters of mine he's talking about are those who are gathered, his disciples, his followers. The least of them are the ones who are most poor, most vulnerable. Um, This isn't saying that Christians shouldn't care for everyone. Jesus is quite clear on this front too, that we're to love our neighbours. However... Jesus says that he identifies so completely with his people in their need that how they are treated is how he is treated. This is something that I, I just think it takes us some time to get our head around because this is not generally our experience of those in power. That is, uh, even the most good-hearted politicians exist on fairly comfortable salary packages and their daily experience tends to be a world away from the most poor and vulnerable of those whom they care for. And the simple reality is that uh, the wounds and the suffering of the poor might be something which leaders of some nations feel some kind of empathy for, but that is not how Jesus describes his experience. He says he is the king where every single kindness or wound to the least and lowest of his people is a kindness and a wound to him that is how strongly and completely he identifies with he cares for he loves even the least in his kingdom 
There is no distance in Jesus' heart between him and you. So, a couple of things I think that are worth pointing out here. Firstly, do you see that Jesus says that the basis of his rewarding or condemning, blessing or cursing, calling or sending away, isn't about mere professed belief? It's not just people who, who, who they, they say they believe the right things, they, they hold to the right doctrines and theological commitments. Rather, the basis of Jesus' division is external evidence of internal love for him. The point being here that in Jesus' own mind, it is quite clear that there is no such thing as conversion without change. There's no such thing as faith without obedience. There's no such thing as love without deeds. Jesus says he will be looking at the external evidence of internal heart transformation. And secondly, uh, he tells us what that external evidence is that he looks for. Uh, Last week, you remember, uh, Rowan Kemp showed us from the preceding passage that Jesus taught, and I'm going to try and... I I watched this online and I had to practice the hand movements from last week. Okay, so he said... See if you can remember with me, right? He said, have as your heart to use for him everything that he has entrusted to you. Uh, Liam and Beck have my back there. I appreciate it. Thank you. Front row champions. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's actually filling out the shape of this now. How you are to use what God has entrusted for you. And the answer is, The evidence of your love for Jesus will be seen in the way in which you use all your resources for the most poor, downtrodden, vulnerable and victimised amongst the people of God. See, if Jesus' heart is for those people above all, if that is on whom his love is set and you love Jesus, then you will love what he loves. It's not possible to love Jesus and not love his people in action. And this is something that you can start doing now. If you're not already doing this, know this, Jesus says, if you love me, love my people, particularly the most vulnerable and downtrodden. Now, that, that gets us almost all the way where we want to go tonight, right? So if we just stop there, this would be fine, okay? This would be a great place to be. It would be knowing that we need to be ready for Jesus' return and knowing that the way to be ready is to love as he loves, to care for the most downtrodden and vulnerable amongst God's people, to care for one another, okay? But what's really interesting that Matthew does next is he tells another story about money and it seems to blow all of this out of the water. Did you notice that? It's very confusing. Let's take us there and let's see what happens and we'll look at then how then should we live. So almost immediately Matthew goes to another account. Uh, We've read this quite recently um, in Luke's gospel, the account of the same event, Luke chapter 7, um, so much so that uh, around the breakfast table, uh, around the lunch table, as we did our regular quiz about the sermon with my family, um, 
my sons may have simply just quoted liberally from the Luke 7 sermon rather than this one and got away scot-free. Um, so, Matthew 26, verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman, we know this woman as, remember from a few weeks ago? A couple months ago. This is Mary, right? She comes with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, probably all her possessions in the world, saying that she owned because of her role, her job as a prostitute, most likely, which she pours out on Jesus' head as he's reclining at the table. Now, <coughs> uh, this gives Jesus' friends a chance to show that they've been listening in class. Right? See, before Jesus even says a word, his disciples leap in after this woman pours out this expensive perfume and they're like, don't worry, Jesus, we've got this one. We know what to do here. We've been following along. It's all about, right, caring for the poor. It's about minimalism. And so they rebuke her. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Isn't it great to take the moral high ground, right? They were outraged on Jesus' behalf. Why this waste, they ask? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And they're like, mic drop. Right? Nailed it. And they've got a point, right? So uh, one of the things we see in Luke's Gospel where this uh, same account is described to us is that this jar is worth about 300 denarii. Like, we're talking about $70,000 just poured out in one wasteful splurge, right? And, and surely Jesus really concerned for all the poor. There, and there, were, there were plenty of poor in his disciples at that stage. Like, that's, that would have gone a long way to solving their problems, right? At which point I suspect Jesus sighs and says, no, you don't have it yet. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. Isn't that heavy? Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And by the way, what, what they did in response will also be told in memory of them. Just be glad. You know, people say, oh, gee, I would have loved to have been able to like, walk alongside Jesus, you know, day by day in the flesh. No, you wouldn't have, because then your name would be in the Gospels and you'd look like an idiot too. See, isn't this funny? Jesus says, no, no, she's done the right thing. So there is something, something extraordinary about this occasion. It ought to be celebrated with like lavish, reckless, abundant love and generosity. Jesus isn't describing like a world of like beige and like, like, teeth gritted sad sorry self-denial where you only ever shop at aldi right that's not the world in which he's describing 
Like, this is not a grim, dark experience. He's talking about this abundant, lavish celebration, and he's praising this woman. How do, you, how do you hold these two together? How do you hold together Jesus saying that actually the discipline that you should be pursuing in your life is using all of your resources to provide for others? Oh, but also from time to time in special occasions, and by the way, like Jesus' death, special occasion. Okay, like you got to measure your special occasions by that. Jesus, there, there will be times when it is right to celebrate and to enjoy that abundance together, to have lavish abundance. I, this is the same one, remember. This is Jesus who makes the best wine. This is Jesus who is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Um, I want to suggest that the best metaphor I've ever encountered for how to bring these together, to bring together the whole, actually, the New Testament witness about how we ought to live um, is uh, the metaphor of wartime. It's not that Christians are at war with the world. That's not the way the Bible describes things. Um, But wartime living is such a helpful way of framing things. who's Who's read anything here about life in London during the Blitz and World War II? few of you have like three i feel so old so you may know that during wartime there is usually something called rationing okay um and uh during uh london uh during during uh, world war ii in london um basic foodstuffs like sugar and, and like meats and fats and bacon and cheese were all directly rationed through the use of coupons and mainly that was so those things could be sent to the front right like you know bacon and cheese for the soldiers and like butter to grease the tanks or something i don't know how it works but yeah the idea was that you would actually exercise a a form of like self-denial you would actually uh, give up a whole bunch of things that you normally had but not because somehow it was cool to be sad but rather because you were participating in something bigger and better than yourself there was a sense of participating in the greater effort, in contributing to something beyond you, in being part of a mission and a vision for the world beyond your mere domestic situation. But at the same time, we also read these accounts of, of how at the time people would scrimp and save and the things that they were allowed, they would stockpile. And if they had an inheritance of like good wines or champagne, they would wait until they were gathered together in the dark with the windows shuttered with their loved ones and friends and they would party as if the world was about to end. They would drink that wine and that champagne because when you don't know whether a bomb will fall on your head and the world be totally changed tomorrow, why would you hold on to that? They would celebrate because that is what life is for. You are part of a mission and a contribution to a bigger vision of the world, but at the same time, there is life and relationships and love to be enjoyed and to be enjoyed together. This is the kind of life that Jesus calls us to, that the Scriptures call us to as Christians. And one of the problems is that We have so little access to the joy and the wonder of this kind of life because actually we've lost the habits of fasting and feasting. 
uh, the ancient church had this idea that actually if you denied yourself for a period, then you actually would enjoy more of what you had when you came to celebrate it together. And that's what the Lenten period is for you. You hear people um, talk about giving up things for Lent. You heard about that? Has anyone ever given any up for, for Lent? What did you give up? Anyone? Someone's embarrassed to say. I gave up cognac for Lent. Sorry? You gave up podcasts for Lent. And, and for Erica, that is a sacrifice indeed. That's right. Anyone else? Meat for Lent. Anyone else? So you gave up sarcasm. <laughs> that is outstanding, Alex. Yeah, I love that so much. Yeah. So you... you See, one of the things that Anglicans, modern Anglicans forget to do, though, is they give up things for Lent and they forget that actually you're meant to fast during the week and then feast on the weekend. Like, so Alex could be like, like giving up sarcasm Monday to Friday and then go nuts on Sunday at church. <laughs> yes, those jeans look really good on you. So, fasting and feasting the problem that we have in the modern world is actually we live up here all the time there are all these social uh, 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 socio-psychological studies that show that actually we don't enjoy what we have because human beings we get used to the stuff we have and it stops exciting us when we have it all the time we just have everything we want on tap you know we want to go and have a coffee we go and have a coffee we have it every day it's not like the thing that we get really excited about because it's coffee month and we get to have it that sunday you know what i mean We've lost the differentiation in life because we've lost the call to be part of this bigger mission and vision to which God is calling us, to be part of God's love for the poor, to to give things up on a regular habit, to exercise self-denial for something bigger and then to feast and celebrate when we come together. Friends, Jesus is so clear on this. The day will come come when he will return. And this time he will not come in meekness and humility. He will come in glory and power. And he will summon every human being before him to give evidence of their love for him. And if you've not resolved that question, come and join the gospel course that kicks off this Tuesday night and ask the questions and explore it. This is not something to leave because when Jesus returns, that day will be too late. And for all of us, as we live together, Jesus calls us to evidence our love for him in how we care for the most poor and vulnerable amongst his people. To look again at our banking, our accounts, our giving, our use of time, to ensure that our heart echoes his heart, that our love is a channel of his love in the world. Let's pray. Dear Heaven, Father, Thank you so much for giving us this timely challenge, encouragement and warning. We know that we have no right to the kingdom that rightly belongs to your son, Jesus Christ. And yet through him, you have invited us to be adopted as your children and heirs, to share in what rightly belongs to him and to so experience eternal life at your side. Teach us to long above all things for his praise. For a day when Jesus says to us, come in, because our lives have obediently and faithfully shown forth the love that we have for him. Shape us to be a people 
who use all we have to echo your passion and purposes in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.